Welcome to Love Requited Etc., a podcast of love and life, stories about unconventional, untethered, and sometimes unreturned love. This podcast is for mature audiences only as it can sometimes be sexually explicit. I am Reverend Liliana Barzola, a spiritual and intuitive healer, creator of Lotus Lantern Healing Arts. Episode number six. Today, I interview my longtime friend, Dr. Robert Cyprian. Dr. Cyprian has been in practice as a chiropractic doctor and professional applied kinesiologist for 18 years. For the 15 years that we lived in the same city, Portland, Oregon, he was my secret weapon. His magician-like doctoring strengthened my mental, emotional, and physical health. In this interview, he shares stories from his tough adolescent years growing up in New York, becoming a graffiti artist, then a doctor, his love life, and views on soulmates. So I heard a fire truck going on in the background. Are you like in the city? Yeah, I'm literally up the street from the White House. We get the presidential motorcade coming by about three times a week. Oh my God. Okay, wait, now I need to see you. Can I see your apartment? Yeah. It's my little place. Ooh, nice couch. Thank you. Ooh, kitchen, just like you used to have, nice and open, huh? Yeah, kind of got the bedroom going on in there and everything and... Got my little meditation sitting place in here. Well, it looks like you're in a library when I see when I see the books behind you. I was like, are you at the library? I always got to have my books. Like That's one of the, the only things I moved out here with is like my books and my clothes, and that was it. Totally. <laughs> so, Robert, I want to interview you for my podcast, um, Unrequited Love. How do you want me to introduce you, Robert? Um... I don't know, Dr. Dr. Cyprian, I guess. Yeah, whatever. I don't even care anymore. It's just like when I was a young doctor, I always wanted that prestige. Now I'm like, I don't care. Call me whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of doctor you are? Yeah, I started off as a chiropractor, and then I got into everything else, like holistically. I got into all sorts of muscle testing, nutrition, homeopathy, energy work, emotional work, spiritual work, all that type of stuff. And what were some of the groundbreaking books or teachers? The biggest thing that ever got me to kind of see the spiritual side of things back before I was even, you know, going out to school was um, Celestine Prophecy. Mm. I read that and I was like, whoa. It was like the first kind of spiritual stuff I ever read and it just really blew my mind wide open and really made me hungry for more. Um, and after that, probably – Autobiography of a Yogi, Power Versus Force. Um, those are some of the big key books, I think, that really got me going. Robert, how did you decide to actually become a doctor? I never thought about it, really, growing up. When I was in high school, I hated the structure of school. I, I, I always felt more mature or evolved than everyone around me, so I couldn't handle sitting in the classrooms and dealing with all that stuff. I had two classes where I excelled unbelievably and I put no effort into it. One was law class and the other one was like a nursing class, which is like a pre-medical class. And these were in high school. Mm-hmm. And in both classes, I scored, I think, over 95%. And after my final exam, both of the teachers took me aside and said, you know, you could be a professional at this, either law or medicine. And we have 
you know, we can get you into some good schools. We have connections for you. And I was like, no, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I'm going to be an artist. Later, my mom fell down the stairs, hurt her back. She started seeing a chiropractor. And I was racing motorcycles at the time, and I had a few bad accidents, and I got hurt. She's like, oh, well, come see my chiropractor. And he worked on me and like worked on my foot and popped it back in place and just felt better. And I'm like, whoa, that's pretty cool. And I'm like, but you're a doctor, but you don't deal with like blood and guts. You just kind of work on people, you know, with, without all that stuff. Like, that's pretty amazing. And because I, I, I have a problem with blood. I see my own blood, I pass out. So I can't deal with anything like that, or I can't deal with really <laughs> a, a lot of, you know, like, I think about doctor, you think about ER room, I can never do that stuff. Right. But I got into this whole other concept of being a doctor and then one of my good friends was going to school to become a chiropractor and he was talking about how they use it to help kids with foreign defects, they could slow down cancers with it and all these other diseases. I'm like, whoa, like, that's what I wanna do. I wanna do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the, the biggest thing is, Leon, there's such a rebellious part to it. I think that's what, I, what gets me going the most. I'm just kind of like really a rebel against, you know, just all society it's out there it's like i'm one of the fringe dwellers and something's on the fringe that really works like that's what i'm doing so you love the alternative badassery of doctoring in that echelon where it's about not the american medical society and associations it's really about um alternative health alternative medicine and so you got yourself to la to go to school to become a chiropractor who woke you up into the ak world well um first of all i got really sick ah. um so i was just going for chiropractic and my ex-girlfriend that i was with before i went to school she's like oh yeah we should do more sports chiropractic and stuff like that work on football players i'm like okay so I had this idea of what's I was a sports medicine doctor because I was very masculine and a testosterone-driven thing. You know? And then I got out to school and um, I got severely sick. What happens was when I was leaving undergrad, like, okay, just give us your vaccination card and we'll you know, forward all your transcripts on to your medical school. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, I don't have my vaccination card. Like, oh, no problem. Just go and see the nurse. They'll give you all your vaccinations over again. So in one day, they gave me all my childhood vaccinations over again. And within a year, I was like almost dying. I was like so sick. Wow. I have heard that from so many people that getting that many vaccines can just tank your immune system. Yeah. So I was by by, um, my finals of my first trimester of school, I couldn't even function. I could hardly get to school. I had to plan out. You know, okay, if I get a 40 on this final, I'll pass the course. Like, that's all I can muster up. I had no energy. And every break between trimesters, I'd be just collapsed on a couch, couldn't do anything, and school started again, and I'd start, like, channeling some energy to get through school again, but I kept getting weaker and weaker for my first two years of school. And then I found... um, I, I, there was a couple. There was many doctors I was talking to before. Then I did all the alternative muscle testing stuff and reflexes and energetic work, and I was learning a lot of this stuff, like applied kinesiology, total body modification, neuroemotional technique, network chiropractic. And I learned from back then. You're more accessible to the guys that started all this stuff. So these guys aren't accessible anymore. And I was learning directly from them. And I learned amazing stuff that worked on other people, but never worked on me. It was fun because I'm playing around with other students and friends and miracles are happening to them, but I just kept getting sicker and sicker. And I met this one guy, Dr. Tim Francis, out of Las Vegas. 
every seminar I saw him at, all the doctors would wind up to get work done by him. I went and talked to him and I'm like, hey, can I come to your office and observe and see what you do? He goes, no, I don't want students in my office. I'm like, great, he's an asshole too, but you know. <laughs> so I talked to him, I was like, look, I have this, this, and this going on. Can you help me? He's like, well, yeah, just show up at my office and I can help you. And I was like, what the heck? He's like so confident that he could help me. I, I don't get it. I was a student and I had to pay this guy 500 bucks and then go up to Vegas and get treated by him. He worked on me and everything shifted in one day. I felt like a different person in one day. And his girlfriend at the time, I drove back home that night. I walked in the door. She like, she just like froze with her mouth open. I said, what's wrong? She goes, I didn't recognize you. You look different. Like your whole face and everything looks different. So yeah, I just kept bugging this guy for years and he finally took me under his wing and I still learn from him to this day. Yeah, Timothy Francis is in Las Vegas. That's awesome. So he was one of your mentors. He's one of the most pivotal ones. He, I, I credit him with the one that the guy had saved my life, but I have a lot of mentors that taught me a lot. It just wasn't what I needed personally, but I've, I've learned a lot from so many people and I always take the strongest basics I can from anyone just kind of put together to what I do. And can you talk a little bit about like the one of the books that people start to get into when they learn about applied kinesiology and muscle testing is power versus force? Can you just give a quick like synopsis of what that book is about and like the consciousness charts and because that that's a really great way to talk about the world is understanding consciousness levels. Like I started off saying, you know, you are kind of raised in a pretty unconscious life with unconscious people. And you had a pretty dark upbringing. And then it's like your art kind of started to open up your consciousness level. And then you found and magnetized more people to you. Yeah. So this book, Power Versus Force, it's, um, it, was, it was discovered by Wayne Dyer and put out by Hay House later. But um, I read it when it was still kind of an underground self-published book. And it's by this guy, Dr. David Hawkins, who co-authored Orthomolecular psychology with Linus Pauling, the guy who won the uh, Nobel Prize for like, you know, nutrition and emotions and all that stuff and everything. Mm -hmm. And so this guy, you know, he's not just some weird wacko. And he's also at one point had the largest psychiatric practice in the whole country. Whoa. So he was someone that really knew a lot about the mind from a medical point of view, but was also kind of like a spiritual enlightened person. And he saw someone doing muscle testing and he realized this is how people that aren't like, you know, spiritually enlightened can figure things out. They can figure out the truth with muscle testing that bypasses your conscious mind right to the subconscious. So he started doing a lot of experimenting with muscle testing and he devised this scale of from what is like more Christ consciousness, which is kind of the highest thing we can attain in the physical world presently, all the way down to shame, which is what he claims is one of the lowest emotions that you could be kind of trapped in. And he charted this zero to a thousand. And he found out that there's a, a midpoint around the number 250 where a muscle, if you're using it to kind of gauge someone or something or whatever, it'll go from weak to being strong. So if you've ever seen someone does muscle testing and they put a vitamin on your body and if it goes strong, it means it's good for you. If it goes weak, it's bad for you. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a certain midpoint around the consciousness level of 250 where it goes from strong to being weak. And he examined all the psychology behind all these levels of consciousness all the way from zero to a thousand. He found out like your worldview. He found out your God view and how God interacts in your life. And he made this huge chart 
of levels of consciousness. And he can muscle test people to see where they are in this level of consciousness or companies or governments or politicians. You can apply it to anything to see where they are on this levels of consciousness, anywhere from all the way down to shame up to, you know, Christ or Buddha consciousness. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That is so awesome. I hope they came across understandable. It was yeah. very clear. It was very clear and concise. It's a very complex thing to explain. So I'm just like, holy shit, good job. <laughs> it's like, that's I'm like, you, you explain it, Robert, not me. <laughs> um, so, so you had all of this awakening and epiphany. And then as you are going through school, you're getting mentored by this fringe energy, fringe doctor, something that's a little bit more woo, woo woo, and is also a fringe dweller like you. But the magic is real because you're getting better. You're seeing people get better. You're seeing people flock to this doctor like bees to honey. And you're like, okay, so there's things out in the woo-woo world world that are legit. There are things that really change people's lives. And I want to be a part of that. I was labeled the fixer in the clinic. So if any student messed up a patient coming into the clinic and they got hurt or something went wrong or whatever, they'd call me and I'd fix the person no matter what happened. So I just had uncanny ability to fix a lot more people than anyone else could in there. And um, yeah, I mean, I couldn't fix anyone. I was given a lot of challenges, but you always learn from those. And from the man who discovered muscle testing, applied kinesiology, Dr. George Goodhart, he used to mostly lecture about his failures rather than his successes. Cause he said that you always learn the most from your failures. Beautiful. So you're saying you can't, you couldn't really fix everybody, but no. you, everybody you couldn't fix, you learned from. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I have a, a a very strong intuition about people, and um, I can kind of sense what's going on. And sometimes I just know there's something going on in a person's life that I can't broach with them, or they, you know, I can't help them with. It's something bigger. And as I've got older and learned more and more things and more and more confidence in myself, sometimes I bring those things up more now, a lot more times I bring those things up for the people to listen to me. And I'm like, look, you know, your problem isn't your back's out of place. Your problem is your adrenal glands are shot and you should, you know, your job sucks and your relationship sucks. And that's why your back is hurting. (laughs) That is awesome, Robert. So what you're saying is sometimes you can't fix someone because it's the situation that they're in. And it doesn't matter how many times they come get healing with you. If they're not actually changing their situation, their body isn't going to get better. Yeah, it's their life and they got to change their life. And the pain is a messenger to them. They're like, hey, look, your life sucks and you got to change it or else you're not going to get rid of this pain. You know, I always say pain is a friend. Pain is a messenger. Pain's alerting you to something. It might be that, yeah, there's something wrong with your body or there's something wrong with your life. Either way. Can you tell the story about your practice in L.A., one of your naughty practices, or is that is that not for our listeners' ears? Oh, no. What do you mean? Like when I was working on all the dancers in L.A.? Yep. <laughs> all right. So, um. One of the mentors I had who passed away now, he's a, he was Dr. Victor Frank. And this guy was just unbelievable guy. He was a skinny old guy from originally from L.A. but lived out in Utah later. He used to wear these cowboy polyester suits with like the three wolf tie and all that stuff. This guy was just a riot. And um, he always says, I don't have a filter. You know, I say what I think and I do what's on my mind. And most people can't deal with me, but that's me. 
And this guy was an unbelievable healer. I mean, he could make cancer tumors disappear overnight and stuff like that. It was, it was unbelievable. And I went to take his class and I was like in the third round of his classes where, you know, you take like weekend one, weekend two, weekend three. I was taking the third weekend, I think. He goes, okay, docs, this is the last time I'm going to teach this because all the religious doctors are giving me hell about this, but this is the natural boob enhancement technique. And I'm like, wait, a what? natural boob enhancement technique. Yes. Okay. Tell us more. So it was, it's just a quick little thing. It was only three pages long in his notebook. And he had a paper he wrote about using acupuncture points in the ear with the little ear seeds at certain points to, uh, to grow, to grow breasts naturally. And um, I was like, are you kidding? What? And I'm like, okay, like, all right. And I go home to my roommate at the time. My roommate was uh, dating this uh, uh, exotic dancer in Los Angeles, very young, beautiful woman. And I'm like, hey, I just learned this thing at this class about how to make boobs bigger naturally, these things in the ear. And she goes, well, do it on me. I'm like, okay. So you're supposed to do this once a week for four weeks and then kind of see where the patient's at. And I did it on this girl for two weeks, and then she stopped dating my roommate, so she kind of disappeared. And um, about a year later, I start getting these calls from random women who are exotic dancers, like, oh, I heard you do some natural medicine stuff for breast enlargement and all stuff. I'm like, what? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And this girl got her calendar shoot the next year, and her boobs were so much bigger. All her friends in the whole exotic dancing industry in Los Angeles are like, what'd you do? Did you get a boob job? She goes, no, but wait, this guy did this thing to my ears like a year ago, and I didn't even notice, but my boobs grew a whole size. Whoa. So every Wednesday, I had a half day of school, and I'd have a line of girls waiting in my hallway in my apartment building to get worked on for this, and I was charging like 150 bucks each to get this done. And I was pretty much almost paying my rent sometimes just by doing this with some of them. It worked. Some of them, it didn't. It just depended what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, a relationship factor is pretty important. You need to have a, a good sexual connection and chemistry going on and a lot of sexual stimulation actually for it to grow with the acupuncture points. If you didn't have that. That really didn't work. Like yeah. your connection with love and sensuality and all that. So that yes. the ear points open channels but then you need the physical chi to be stimulated for it to actually get through the open channels then yeah i I practiced in the beverly hills area for about a year and uh, my ex-girlfriend wanted to become a naturopath so we moved up to portland and my teacher was teaching up there too so i'm like all right cool yeah portland seems cool and i went up to portland lived there almost 13 and a half years awesome and so people in dc can come and see you when Robert moved away, it was a very sad day for all of us here that all of your patients, we were so, so sad. Man, I have known Robert for a long time. And Robert, your work was pivotal in helping me get out of a, an abusive relationship. Working with Robert during that time helped my body and my nervous system and my emotions so much that I was able to advocate for myself enough to get to safety. And I I look back at those years when I first met Robert, and it was such a blur for me emotionally and mentally and physically. And I just remember getting up into your office and having you do your your adjustments and your applied kinesiology and your muscle testing and all the emotions that you cleared out of my body and helping me structurally gave me all the strength to go back into my relationship that wasn't healthy and unwind and get out of that over time. And it probably took about six months of me coming to see you and getting treated before I could get all the way out of that relationship. So I thank you for that time. It was pretty, um, 
it saved my life. The work that you did with me saved my life. That's a great story. It's a great story. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And when I um, started working with you, of course, I started sending all my clients to you. And then years later, you moved to D.C. So if you're on the East Coast, I definitely recommend getting in to see Robert. And we'll have a link that um, shows to your schedule and all that. But where are you working in D.C., Robert? I'm at Pico Acupuncture and Wellness on 9th Street in Northwest D.C. It's just a few blocks up of the convention center. And um, how about you, Robert? Have you had any unrequited loves or unconventional loves? Oh, yes, probably. Um, yeah, that's like probably my my life. Yeah. So your life is about unrequited and unconventional love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm such a, um, I feel like I, I live my life from my heart so much and that's why it's getting so much trouble as a kid. We're trying to grow up in such a masculine environment and everything. And, you know, my heart has always been wanting to be open, wanting to be safe, wanting to be free in all aspects of life. And yeah, it's just, I'm always working on. And that's one of my biggest guides in my whole life is how's my heart feeling right now? How's my heart feeling in this situation? How's my heart feeling with that person? What are your views on relationships and marriage and love? My views are that, you know, the, the biggest things I work on for myself and you've taught me a lot about this and also Marion Williamson, Don Miguel Ruiz, that any relationship you have is a mirror of yourself. If you have a relationship where, you know, everything's fun and happy and just like, oh, everything's going good, that's how you feel about yourself. If you have a relationship where all of a sudden someone's getting snippy with you or picking on you or it's turbocharged healing, that's what a relationship is. That's really what it is. So what are your views on marriage and dating and relationships? Well, you know, I grew up seeing marriages not work. I think all the relationships I grew up with, my parents, my grandparents on both sides, like they no longer slept in the same bedroom anymore and just kind of all that happened. They were just together for the kids. And I'm just always like, you know, when I start getting in relationships, I'm like, well, this is great, but how do you keep it going that way? Mm-hmm. You know, I was just mm-hmm. able to, to get that, to keep that going. And I'm someone who loves to have a good, steady um, partner and relationship. Like I want a partner in crime in life, but I always feel there's always outside influences that you're attracted to too. And those outside influences could also stimulate your love life with your partner if it's all in an ethical way. So I always come from where I, where I do, where I figured out I am, I'm in the monogamish zone of relationships. Ooh, monogamish. What's monogamish? <laughs> monogamish where it's like you know you, you mostly got you and your, your your partner that you guys are like together in life but once in a while you guys might mess around with someone else whether together or separately or whatever but it doesn't get to like a polyamorous point or something like that it's just kind of a little bit of fun and stimulation you know got it why doesn't it fall into the polyamory definition Well, then it's kind of like it's not monogamous anymore. It's just polyamory. So where I'm from is like, you know, I'm not going to be living with three people in my house. It's not going to be like a quad relationship or wedding or something like that. Like I like people who are good friends like you can be amazing friends with. And, you know, some of my best friends in my life, I slept with them once and that was it. And 
you know, and I'm best friends with them and their partners and everything. And I might sleep with them again and that's okay. But it's just like, just that connection where you felt safe enough to be sexual with someone. And then like you have the heart connection with that. That's some of the best friends I have in my whole life. And that's people I always keep connections with. And so it sounds like you have a main squeeze. You have your primary partner, but then you and your primary partner, um, in your definition of being monogamous, you've got primary partners, but then you have certain rules that allow you to be intimate with other people. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Just as long as there's, you know, honesty there and ethics and all that. Yeah. I can get jealous. You talk about it. And every time you have a challenge like jealousy, when you talk about it, the both of you get to another level of trust. It's like you always are climbing up a ladder. My first, um, alternative relationship I had back about back in 2010 we were both new into this and we both wanted to try it out we both kind of got a bad relationship so like hey we both really like each other but we don't want to commit but we had such a great connection we were inseparable almost every day so we started hanging around a little bit with people in the more open relationship realm hanging out more swingers and polyamorous people and just learning from them not exposing ourselves to it but just learning from them and seeing how it helped their relationship so we gained a lot of wisdom from that we read a lot of great books on it what are some you would recommend to someone interested in a well, the, more alternative lifestyle? Because I think I think the the generations coming up are totally open to it. I mean, their their idea of gender, their idea of like you know monogamy and marriage and everything is is much more um, creative. Yeah. Well, the the old classic is called the Ethical Slut, and that's by Easton and Hardy. Okay. And. That- that book is just like the classic. You, everyone's always going to be reading that book. That's the first one that really came out that made it okay to just want to be with someone else but being ethical about it with your partner and the other person and everything. Got it. Um, a great book that came out from more of an anthropological point of view, which I think is brilliant, is Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan. And he is just a genius. He looked at this anthropologically, looked at it from a biological point of view, from science, and said, this is who we are as a people. We are someone that likes a main connection, but we like to stray a little bit. And that's just who we are evolutionarily. And he, you know, looked at it from different points of view and showed us indigenous cultures that still live this way. He showed us other biological creatures that live this way. And it's fascinating. And there's a great book called Opening Up by Tristan Taramino, which um, it just kind of shows different ways that this can happen in your life and with different people at different ages. It shows that it's okay across the board to do this just as long as, you know, again, it goes back to communication and trust and openness and all of that. Awesome. So it sounds like you have to do a lot of communication and you have to be really conscious and really clear and really honest to do a relationship like this that has more of a gray area or is less traditional and conventional. Personality-wise, you know, for the people that I counsel that are monogamish or they're in a polyamory situation, what I see is it takes a certain personality type. So when I see couples where one wants to do it and the other one doesn't, that's always a bit of a red flag. I think it takes two people that have this personality that loves the idea of like, I'm yours, you're mine, but we can play around and do these other things. Because some people really, it's just not their jam and that's okay. But I think more and more it's become acceptable and we're more open-minded and more, more real about what we really need and want so that people who have that inclination like you do, Robert, can have the freedom to find a partner who vibes with them 
on that level and the permission to say like, yeah, this is who I am. This is my lifestyle. And it's okay. It's not a moral code that I'm breaking. If anything, I'm being far more ethical than half the people out there. Definitely. And like you said, it's not for everybody, but when I'm on some, you know, early stages of dating with some women, I talk to them about this. They think about it and they're like, you know, that's, that's a great idea. Cause I mean, especially out here in DC, I meet a lot of like young lawyers and they're just busy and, you know, they're just getting out into the new careers here in DC. And a lot of them are coming here from another country and they're like, that's exactly what I want. I want someone to hang out with and, you know, have a good time with and have comfort with, but I'm kind of, you know, I don't want to be kind of just a hundred percent into this, but I, I want a, a, a big hold of it. That is awesome. So you, you date a lot of people who maybe don't even know they want that. And then you'll teach them about that. Well, yeah, because otherwise what people were doing is just pulling away from a partner or cheating or, you know, just not disclosing that they're dating other people. And then I teach people, well, you can be honest about this. And when you have honesty about it, yeah, you might lose some people in your life, but the people who are right for you in your life are going to be closer to you. Do you want to share any of your unrequited love stories or is that too personal? Well, I, mean, I don't think you need to name names, but I think you could talk about that experience, like what, what it means to be unrequited. I mean, I think a lot of the time in your own words, it would be good for you to say like, you know, what happens when you feel like you have a soulmate that you don't actually get to be with as a life mate? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, soulmates, they're going to uh, get your attention and, you know, they're going to change your life in some big way. And you just got to be grateful for that. And sometimes you still just really look at this person like, wow, they're amazing. And even though I went through all of this stuff, I still think they're such an amazing person and they're beautiful and, you know, and I still want to help them and I still want them to be with me. But Hey, if it doesn't work out that way, what you got to do is just keep working on yourself to attract that, you know, your next step into your life. Because um, there's always going to be that fulfillment I feel in life, just as long as you allow it to be there. And you keep getting up to that next level where you're going to meet that next person. Have you had your heart broken? Oh, yes. Plenty of times. Yeah, I, it's weird. I live a life where I feel that I've experienced a lot of what women experience, but in a man's, bo man's body. I am the type of guy where I'll be attracted to a woman and all of a sudden she'll like break up with her ex or whatever and she'll go straight for me and then we'll, we'll go, we'll date for a couple weeks and have some fun sex or whatever. And then she's like, oh, well, I'm going back with my boyfriend or she's going to meet someone else and go with them. So I always feel like the guy that kind of gets used for a few weeks uh -huh. and then move on to someone else. I think I'm looking for trust and connection. You know, that's the biggest thing is trust and connection. In my older age now, I'm getting a very intuitive about partners and dating and everything. And sometimes I'll meet someone just beautiful and unbelievable and I'll be on a second date and I'm like, no, no, it's just, it's just not there or this isn't right or this isn't going to last long term or whatever. So I'm just kind of intuitively just I don't want to start on a, a physical sexual relationship with someone where I feel it's not going to last long because it just gets messy. So for me, I'm just kind of like making so a lot of friends. So you're just saying as you gotten older, you don't fall for the flashy beautifulness. You're like, oh, I need someone that I have that deep connection with. I want the flashy beautifulness with the connection. <laughs> Ooh, high five. 
think it's okay to be picky when it's a life mate that you're looking for. Is it going to be perfect? No, but that's growth for both of us. You know what I mean? I'm always open to um, improving myself and helping someone else improve themselves too. And I also want a partner, even if they're much younger for me, someone that I can learn from because it always works that way. Love that. And I love that you're so hopeful that you've had so much heartache in your life and you're just like, I'm hopeful. This is going to happen. I'm in agreement. It's doing, it's going to happen. It's, it's brewing. It's simmering on the stove. Oh, I see it all the same as like my education of learning to heal people and stuff like that. This is my education of love. It's all the same thing, you know? So you're back on the East coast. You're writing a book right now. Yes. Yeah. I wrote a book last winter. The book is about my upbringing and just kind of my my whole life from a young like a, a young intuitive child growing up in you know Queens New York a father who was like a biker and you're saying at the Hell's Angels and then kind of getting into my own trouble myself and then I mean some literal spiritual um signposts I mean literally people that would manifest in front of me and my friends faces just like unbelievable miracles that would happen to keep guiding me to where I needed to be I grew up as kind of a uh, a bad kid in New York. I was like a gang member, graffiti artist. I had a lot of uh, close brushes with death and the law and stuff like that and everything. And yeah, I've kind of had an interesting upbringing myself as a teenager in a young 20s. And so do you feel like you have a little bit lost in your adolescence? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could say that. Yeah, I got really lost. I um. It was hard for me to, and I think a mixture of my family upbringing and then hanging out with a group of guys like this, because um, even though you know people might see me and I seem very masculine and stuff like that, inside I'm a very feminine type of male. I just get picked on a lot about that. They make me fight people. They make me do all this stuff just to push me. And I actually couldn't even connect with women because of all that going on. I, I never even kissed a girl till I was 21. Wow. So tell me more about being perceived in the world as very masculine yet feeling very feminine internally. Like, do do you think you had language for that when you were younger? You know, I'd be pushed to be aggressive or, but that wasn't your nature. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to fight people. And I would try to just back off and resist and go hide in the back somewhere, but I'd get pushed up front. And because I was kind of, you know, wussing out, they would make me fight. So did you get good at fighting? Um, I got to the point, Liliana, where I didn't want to fight anyone. It's just, I would hurt someone as bad as I could to make things stop in a way. That's kind of like, it's a, it's, it's kind of like, you know, just until I get to that last straw where I explode and then what they would do is they'd make me fight someone and they're toying around me and messing with me. And at some point I just explode and almost kill somebody and I had to break the whole thing up. When you were fighting, was it knives, guns, fists? Just mostly fist to fist within our own kind of neighborhood and group. But when it came to other groups on the outside, mm-hmm. there'd be knives and guns and, you know, people got shot and body parts cut off and stuff like that and everything. Gross. I, Did been, you see that stuff? Yeah. I've been stabbed personally. What about, um, your, like with cops and stuff, like what was your feeling about cops when you were in that lifestyle? Um, I had respect for them because I've been beaten up pretty bad by police before. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just learned that if you respect them, they're not going to mess with you as much. You just got to, you know, just make sure you don't do anything dumb in front of them. And um, so I grew up to kind of work to to with authority like that. And then as I got older and I had a lot of 
friends that were police as, you know, I, I kind of became a doctor and was more of a, on the, on the light side of my life, let's say. Yeah, I got to bond more with some police officers. And I think that was a lot of healing for me. Tell me how you get into a gang. Is that just like you're in high school and then you have to pick a side? I mean, was everyone in your neighborhood in a gang? No, it was just kind of like, all right, I grew up with these friends from junior high. Well, first of all, friends from elementary school, then you get into junior high school, and you're like riding bicycles and playing video games together. And then, hey, let's sneak and get some beer together. And then let's start smoking pot. And then, hey, we're going to start selling this pot now because, you know, I knew this guy that can get me a bunch of it. We're going to sell it, make money. And then, hey, you know, there's just these other guys down the street and they start a fight with me. Okay, let's go beat him up. And, you know, it just escalated. It was just step by step by step until you know it. And like, you know, you're kind of a known person and you're having altercations and people are driving up with what we used to call car loads, like a roll up, like three, four, five cars filled with people, baseball bats, you're fighting each other. So you talk about this progression. It's not like you wake up one morning and you're like, I'm going to be in a gang. It's like, it just happens. Did you guys call yourselves anything? Yeah, there was a few different clusters of our, our of our friends because we also connected with people in other parts of Queens, New York, and the city and everything. And so, kind of like where I first grew up, someone someone else coined us the Forty Six Boys because we were on Forty Six Avenue. Someone else gave us that name. He was actually a very well named known gang member of another gang that we had big problems with. So they kind of coined us that. So that stuck. And then after that, we had all these little three letter gang things like LOD, the Legion of Doom, or KAC, Kings of Crime, and we'd use it for the graffiti stuff. You ever see, like, someone writes their graffiti name, they put these, like, couple little letters after their name. That's what those are. Those are the gangs. And when did graffiti go from just being something naughty to do to something artistic? Or was it always artistic? Um, at first, just hang out with the friends. You know, I'd have a magic marker and use that and just kind of vandalize. And, oh, we'd get some spray paint and vandalize. I saw these books on artwork on the trains and stuff like that. And I used to see the artwork on the trains when I'd go into the city or my grandmother as a little kid, she'd bring me to see the museums and I see all this artwork on the trains. And I always was just like lit up by that. I would see all these colors go by and it's like, you know, eight feet tall and 30 feet wide each train. And I just really wanted to do that. And when I started getting more into the artwork, I kind of broke away from the gang life more because I started getting outside my neighborhood and got some mentors that were artists and started working with them. And I kind of built a separate respect for myself outside the kind of the neighborhood gang where I grew up. And then how do you get out of a gang? Are you just like, hey, guys, I'm I'm doing art now. I just disappear and just don't go around them, you know. <laughs> And then, yeah, you'd, you'd get some crap here and there, like, where are you, man? You don't hang with us. And, you know, we're the ones that, like, you know, got you where you were. You wouldn't even be painting that stuff if it wasn't for us. I still get that to this day. Really? I'm getting this from people in their 40s with three kids, like, hey, you're not putting up our name anymore. and You do all your artwork. That's messed up, man. Like, we're the ones that got you there. I mean, this is still happening. Wow. And there's people that are, like, 48 years old that want to fight me because they think I stole one of their pictures of their graffiti back in the day or something like that. Whoa, so do you have to be careful when you go home? Yeah, kind of. You're going to get jumped. <laughs> no, seriously, it's, yeah. I thought, you know, it might be hard to get out, but people still, they remember that shit, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. I like to be around it once in a while. Like, I like to go back and hang out with some of these people, and it's it's a whole different world again. But I'm just like, yeah, I can't live in that anymore. So do you still do graffiti art? Yes, I do. Um, and I, I really love it. It's something that when I'm doing it, I'm just like, 
full on channeling something and I lose track of time and, you know, hunger and needing something to drink or go to the bathroom and everything. I just paint and paint and paint. Get in the zone. And how do you do that? Like safely as an adult, like, do you still have to go hide out or are there places you can paint? No, it's, I'm kind of a, when, when you look at the whole graffiti, like, uh, genre of artists around the world. I'm, I'm a little bit famous just for who I was back in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So when that hears of me that, you know, that this guy Greed, which was my graffiti name back then, that he's around and he wants to paint, they offer me places to paint that are safe and legal and stuff like that because they want to paint with me. So you get invited to go paint yeah. because yeah. of your name that you have. What, where are the different places you've gotten to paint? I've gotten, uh, I did a lot of painting in um, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland. I've been up to Toronto painting, um, Miami, out here in Washington, D.C. Wow. Denver. Yeah. And it's yeah. funny because I'll, I'll go somewhere like Toronto to go teach some doctors at a conference. And someone will be like, oh, if you're in Toronto, talk to Quest. And this, this guy, Quest, who's one of the biggest graffiti artists up in Canada, takes me all over the city, takes me on a tour. We paint together. We go out to eat together. It's great because when it comes to the graffiti artwork, there are no racial lines. There's no ethnic lines. There's no you know different upbringing. It's like everyone's together and everyone just wants to meet you and accept you. And it's, 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 it's something worldwide. It's a network that you're just accepted wherever you go. Wow. It's its own little microcosm. All right, Dr. Cyprian, thank you so much for letting me interview you. You are welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about Dr. Cyprian by going to MuscleTestingDoctor.com. He sees patients in Washington, D.C. at Pico Wellness Center. This has been a Lotus Lantern production, all rights reserved.